right, take your New Testaments now, and we'll turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 1, 1 Corinthians 10, starting at verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now this, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you. It is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let anyone be tempted above your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. <clears throat> Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. May the Lord indeed add his blessing upon this word as we have heard it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing upon the preaching and hearing of that word now. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we pray, hear us and minister to us through your word now. Lord, we thank you that we can come before you. We pray, Lord, that you would instill in us that reality of who you are and your greatness before us, your transforming power. We pray, Lord, that you would instruct us, that you would change our hearts, that you would place your will in our hearts and minds, Lord, that we would love you in new ways, that we would think rightly and that we would act according to your love. We pray, Lord, that you would be now with uh, the hearers of your word, Lord, and the one who speaks it. And we pray that the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. We ask all these things in Christ's name and God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, what a wonderful blessing that we can this Lord's Day celebrate again. Both sacraments are ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The Lord has blessed his church with many baptisms recently, uh, and there are more to come. Uh, praise God. And I thought it would be good in the context of this, in the midst of these many baptisms, to review the Scripture's teaching on the subject. What does God's Word say about baptism? I want us to look this morning at 1 Corinthians 10 and see what we might learn from it. And we'll see that Scripture indeed is not silent regarding baptism. It's not silent regarding baptism. Scripture shows us, rather, what God wants us to do regarding baptism. But God's Word tells us who the subject of subjects of baptism are to be, and who should come under the waters of baptism. 
What does Scripture teach about baptism? What does it tell us about this sacrament? It tells us that the sign of God's people has a point. It tells us that the promise of God has the primacy. But the first thing I want us to see is that the people of God have a past. People of God have a past. God's people have a common history. Uh, They have a common past. And notice how Paul begins this text in verse 1, where he says, I want you to know, brothers, that our forefathers, and then he goes on. And you see what Paul's doing here. Paul's writing to a church made up of almost, if not entirely, Gentile members. And if you know anything about the Corinthian church, which I'm sure you do, they were, prob- they were a very problematic group of people. Right? Plenty of troubles, plenty of issues. Yet Paul is still willing to call them brothers, even though some of the sins that, they were, that were rampant there would make us cringe and wonder if they could even be called a church at all. And yet Paul has no problem addressing them throughout this letter as brothers, the church of Corinth, saints by calling. And he says to this Gentile church that's struggling in its behavior and in its church life, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, that our forefathers, and he goes on, Paul's speaking to a church that has no Jewish heritage. You have to understand this. No common history physically or nationally with Israel. And yet Paul includes this whole church and he says, you brothers share our history because you are now believers in Christ. And the history of the Old Testament becomes your history as well. Those people back there are your people. And they have a common faith and a common God. And this is significant because in our day, it's the dominant view that the church and Israel are two entirely different things, right? They can't be the same. They can't. There's no analogy there. There's no continuity. But when we read the pages of the New Testament, we see that Paul has no problem joining the Gentile church into the story that is already being told in redemptive history. And he says, we have this mutual ancestry, this mutual faith. The Bible makes clear that Jew and Gentile are branches grafted into the same root, and that we're being built into one man in Christ, right? Ephesians 2 uh, 22, I believe, in that area, right? One man. We're not the far off or the near. We're being made into one man in Christ. And it should be clear from this text that there is unity now between believers in the Old Testament and believers in the New. And they're not separated by, by two, some, some two sort of faith or reality or two plans or two ways. This isn't the only place we see this. Uh, we see in the, this, this continually throughout the New Testament. Right? When Paul comes to the core doctrines of the New Testament, where does he go, for example? Right? Like justification by faith. When Paul is searching to come up with some example to, just, to explain this, where does he go? He points us to Abraham. Right? He points to Abraham and he says, remember Abraham and what happened to him? He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Or when Paul is looking for an example of the blessed man, who's had his sins totally forgiven, who's been purged utterly of all of his shame. He doesn't refer to, as he could have, the tax collectors or Peter in his denial of the Lord at the crucifixion. Instead, he goes all the way back to the Old Testament. He says in Romans 5, remember what David said. Oh, how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are covered. And Paul makes his case from the Old Testament because it is the history of God's people. 
right? God's one people, not two peoples or plans. And this continuity, according to Paul, even flows into the sacraments of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, as we see in this in our text this morning. We see that there is this connection, their mutual history, the past of the people of God, between God's people and the people in the old and the new. What a wonderful truth this is, right? What a glorious truth, even for us. God calls us and brings us into his story, this unfolding history of redemption throughout time of his people, of which he's made you and I a part, right? This is one glorious thing for which we should praise him and delight in his love and give glory to him. So that's the common past of God's people. And then we see God's, that God's sign has a point, right? Let's look at what baptism means in the Old Testament, according to the New Testament, and what we can learn. And in doing so, we'll see whom are the subjects of baptism as well. Paul's very clear about whom he's speaking in chapter 10, and he says, All Israel was under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Right? And so Paul sees that there was a baptism that took place in the Old Testament. And he uses some interesting references, right? The cloud and the sea. And when he does this, he teaches us about our present Christian life as well in telling us part, this part of history. You want to understand what he's talking about. What does he mean that we're all baptized, they were all baptized into the cloud and the sea? Well, what is the cloud? What is the cloud in the Old Testament to which he refers when you go through the Old Testament, you'll notice that the cloud has a particular reference there on the Old Testament. There's, uh, it had a particular uh, symbolic representation, and that sign and symbol of the cloud was of God's presence with his people. God's presence with his people. And so when Israel is led out, of, out in the Exodus, the cloud is there by day and a pillar of fire by night, as we just heard. That's God's way of showing that he is with them and that he is for them. Or think of the tabernacle and its construction, or the temple. This cloud comes and it fills the entirety of the temple in the tabernacle in order to show what? That God's presence is with them. He has come. He is there with his people, and he is for them. Right? And so when Israel, when the people gather at Sinai, what do we see? This cloud comes and it settles on the mountain so that they know that God has arrived. And so when Paul refers to this cloud, He's clearly making a reference to God's presence, God's presence. Uh, it's a specific incident that takes place in the Old Testament that we read about, read about this morning uh, in Exodus 14, right? What did it say? It said that God's presence is with Israel in the sign of the cloud. He's leading them out, and they're in a panic, and the Egyptians are behind them, pursuing them. And we see this cloud leading them out, and then it rises and it goes to the back, and it becomes their rear guard to defend them. And Paul says regarding the cloud that they were under it and that they were baptized into it. Paul calls the spoon of the cloud over them, oddly enough, a baptism. And then he goes on to say that they were baptized in the sea, in the sea. That might might sound strange to us because the Egyptians were the main ones. They were the ones who got baptized. They were the ones who got wet. But he clearly refers to this as a baptism. The sea is referring to the Red Sea, of course, and this is a well-known incident. This is the great redemptive act of God in the Old Testament. 
the parting of the sea, the exodus, God's bringing his people through and out. And if we look at what happened leading up to this, uh, to this passage in Exodus, we see that God, what? He sent the angel of death on the night of Passover. And Pharaoh has finally said as a result, finally, take your people and get out of here. And Israel, as they start their journey in haste towards the promised land, and then they realize that Egypt is now following them, right? Pharaoh has changed his mind, and he wants to come after them, and he wants to bring back his labor force to Egypt. And remember our forefathers in the faith at this point, this pivotal, crucial, critical time in history. These men of faith, these mighty, brave, and courageous men, remember what their response to Moses was? Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why, what, have, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to die, uh, to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. No faith at all, right? They're saying you brought us out here to be murdered by this army that we clearly can't fight against. This is not the height of faith. Of his, in Israel. They're panicked. They don't know what to do. Yet God tells Moses to instruct them that he's going to do, or that he's going to be with them and for them, and God is going to fight on their behalf. And they have but to what? But to watch the glory of the Lord and his power and his might and be silent. And notice when they come to the Red Sea, they don't say, this is awesome. It's baptism Sunday. This is what we've been waiting for where we make our profession of faith and everyone knows our commitment to God, the God of Israel. That's not what they say. That's not what they say. What they find when they come to the Red Sea is certain death, either by the army behind them, or they can die trying to get their children and their stuff through the Red Sea in front of them. This is not salvation in their eyes. This is not glory. This is not encouragement. This does not look like good news to them. This is not with the pure waters of baptism that we're normally used to. Right? It's not how they see them. <clears throat> These people are so certain that this will lead to their death that they said it would have been better for them if they had died in Egypt in servitude <clears throat> to the Pharaoh. But what happens? God commands, and the east winds come, and it begins to separate the waters, and dry land appears. And then the whole nation marches through on dry land. We've heard this before, right? Is this the first time in the Bible, the first story that we hear historically in the Bible that if something like this happens? right? Where else do we have these chaotic waters, these waters of chaos that are commanded to be separated by the presence of a wind? It's in the very first pages of Scripture. right? The Bible says that the earth was formless and void and the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. Creation is covered entirely by water. And the very Spirit of God, it's the same word for wind. The Spirit of God is hovering, blowing over the waters, and God commands that these waters separate. He separates the waters, and finally what appears in that event. So early in our scripture, in the creation narrative, dry land appears. Dry land appears, a place where people can be established, where Adam and Eve can live and dwell and live after his commandments and glorify his name. And where else do we see this going on? Right? We see the same thing in, the, in, in the, uh, the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea. 
God commanded light, the same God commanded light to shine out of darkness. The God who commanded the waters to be separated creation separates these waters and dry land appears. And the people walk through, ultimately walking forth into a brand new creation. They're leaving behind the old world they're coming from. And again, this isn't the only, isn't, uh, the only story in the Bible that has all of these elements. Right? Remember after the flood of the time of Noah, that great, that great cataclysmic flood. You remember that time when God, uh, he undoes all of creation and he recreates. And like at creation, the world is covered with water. And there's only one family floating on top of those waters to safe, safety. And what does it ultimately, uh, what does it take ultimately for this dry land to appear? Do you remember? God sends a wind and the waters receded and behold, dry land appears. And Noah and his family walk out into what is literally a new creation. And if you have time, perhaps later this Lord's Day, look at all that's going on in creation and then the story of the flood, right? It's, it's a redoing. It's almost point by point what God does. God creates, and then he undoes creation, and then he creates again. It's a new creation. It's a place where they are established to walk in God's ways and live before him in faith, right? And so there's this connection in Scripture that we see. And we see Peter, the apostle in 1 Peter 3.20, he refers to the flood in reference to a baptism. He's able to look back to the flood and say, that was a baptism. Like Paul looks at the Red Sea, and he also says, that's a baptism. And as these people walk through the waters of the sea, because God sends a wind and dry land is created, and behold, a new creation is being entered into by those who were saved through that event. And notice as Israel passes through these waters, Egypt is left behind and renounced. Israel's done with that old way of life. And they're being issued forth into the whole new way of life. God's calling his people now by his name through this action. And notice what's going on, right? They renounce that old life. God's name is placed upon them, and they become his people through this action. And they're called from that time forward to live for him. Again, notice in Exodus 14, before he parts the sea, they have no faith, which is interesting, right? Prior to their baptism, they don't give a grand profession of faith. They have very weak, if not non-existent faith. And they say it would have been better for them to have died in Egypt than for God to lead them out to the slaughter. It's only after the Red Sea crossing, right, that they turn back and they see Egypt dead in the water and they say, now we believe. And notice their faith comes after that baptism, right? Again, verse 30, thus the Lord saved that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel, <clears throat> sorry, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Right? It's after this event that they have faith and they believe. The New Testament clearly calls this action in Exodus a baptism. And you see the pattern. God is teaching us here in it, right? So God's people, they have a past, right? It's mutual history. God, God's sign has a point, has a meaning to it. And then God's promise in this sign has the primacy 
right, has the primacy. Notice that baptism is not primarily and first and foremost about our profession of faith. And many times we look at it this way, and we think the core of baptism, the very center of it, is our announcing to the world that we're going to follow God, and that the one being baptized is the active party. And I'm sure this is not unfamiliar to most of you. And that sentiment is somewhat understandable. There's definitely a responsibility to follow God that flows from baptism, even as we heard this morning as the children came under the waters of baptism. But that's not its essential meaning. It's not what is happening at baptism. It's a byproduct of baptism. It's not a profession of faith of the one being baptized, but it's a profession of God's faith and His promise, a sign of what God is doing for His people. It's a sign of God's presence with and for His people. It's God's way of saying, I am doing something for you. I am opening up a new way of life for you. I'm bringing you through these waters. I'm establishing you as a nation, he says to Israel. God is the active participant. They don't even want to be there, right? And yet after God does these things, they begin to change their view of him. And notice that baptism in this text is a sign of salvation through judgment. Salvation through judgment. These things that are called baptisms, the flood of Noah, clearly the waters there are judgment waters, right? God has judged the whole world, but salvation for God's people comes through these waters of judgment, or the Red Sea. Notice Israel, they're not the ones under the water, it's the Egyptians. Those waters of judgment through which salvation comes for God's people. So the water is first and foremost a sign of God's judgment. But thankfully, that judgment is borne out on others and not the recipients who are blessed with the, the blessing of baptism. And also notice who is there in the Red Sea crossing. But who is there? Children. Children are there. Literally children were baptized in this event. There's no way around that. When the Israels go from Egypt, they're clearly instructed to take their children with them. And notice what Paul says again. All of Israel was under the cloud and the sea. All of Israel was baptized. All of them had these happen to them. And so literally, small children and infants were brought through baptism way back then in what Paul calls a baptism. And we see there that this is this, this historical community that we are connected to. And they have this historical baptism that the Bible uh, presents to us in the New Testament, clearly calling it a baptism. And everyone is involved, young and old alike. And we have to ask, as we look at this data, as we look at the, this, this overview, this outline of history, what are the implications of that baptism? What, are, what, is, what is the requirement of that baptism? What, is it, what does it ask of us? Well, what's required after they are baptized is faith. It's faith. <clears throat> and how do we know this? Again, look at the Corinthians. Paul's trying to teach them something. And he says in verse 1, Do not be unaware. And in verse 6, These things took place as examples for us. In verse 11, These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. And he uses this illustration of Old Testament Israel, and he says, Look, these people had a baptism. They had a meal, spiritual food and spiritual drink. And they drank from the, the spiritual rock, and that rock followed them, and that rock was Christ. 
And he's telling them to look at the similarities here. They were God's people. They had sacraments like baptism in the Lord's Supper, sign and a meal. They had Christ with them in the wilderness. And notice in verse 9 what he says. We must not, like they did, put Christ to the test. By the way, what a, what a wonderful text showing that, yes, indeed, Jesus is in the Old Testament. Because that's what he's saying they did. They were testing Christ. They are putting Christ to the test way back in the Exodus, the second book of the Bible. And Paul says they had all of that, but some of them did not mingle all those things, all those benefits with faith. And what was the result? They perished in the wilderness. And Paul is definitely giving us a warning here in 1 Corinthians 10. And it's a very stern warning. He says, beware that you do not do what they did, lest you fall in the wilderness like they did. So there is this historical community that we are connected to. They had a baptism. That baptism included infants. All of those covenant community, all, everyone in that community. And it requires faith following that baptism. What does that mean for us? We saw in the Old Testament that baptism... Baptisms refer not to signs of the participants, the receivers, uh, not their faith, right? But first and foremost, and not even signs merely of salvation, but rather they were a sign of judgment waters through which salvation comes, right? Redemptive judgments, you might say. And in each of these examples in the Old Testament, both adults and their children were involved in the baptism's uh, watery judgment that led to their salvation and ultimately to new creation, and so we see this pattern here. And the question ultimately is, what? Is, is this still true in the New Testament? Is that how baptism is spoken of in the New Testament as well? Right? And we look at the imagery that's used in the New Testament, and we see what? Mark chapter 10, we have James and John, right? And they come to Christ, and they say, when you come into your kingdom, we want to sit at your right and your left. And what did Jesus say to them? He says, can you be baptized with the baptism I'm about to be baptized with? What's he referring to there? His crucifixion, right? His crucifixion. And he looks forward to the cross and he says there, he says, there I will be baptized. Can you do the same thing, James and John? And it shouldn't surprise us that the cross is looked at in the scriptures as a baptism, right? And how does this make sense? It makes sense if you realize that the flood of Noah and the crossing of the Red Sea, those were judgment waters. And they came and they destroyed the enemies of God. And that's exactly what is happening on the cross. God is pouring out his wrath and his judgment on his enemies. And he's doing so through the crucifixion of his beloved son. Our sins, our death, our destruction is being born on this one on the cross as he is baptized with the wrath of God the full wrath of his fury. God pours it all out on him for the sins that we have committed. And this shouldn't really surprise us, right? Because when we talk about baptism, those images, in one sense, come to mind even if we don't really make the connection outwardly and obviously. Right? Because when Paul says we're buried with him in baptism, well, how do you get buried? You die. And he's already making here, Paul, is this linkage between Christ's death and our baptism. And so when we look at the cross, we look to that cross and we see that that was a judgment, the judgment waters of God being poured out upon Christ, his son. And it's a redemptive judgment, praise God. It's a redemptive judgment. And it's also interesting 
what happens once these judgment waters are poured out. If the Old Testament pattern is this, right? waters of judgment, God sends a wind, then new creation. Do we see this in the New Testament? Does it stop in the Old? Is it something that's left behind? Notice that once Christ has died, and once God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, or that's the word again, connected with wind, raises him from the dead, he comes forth as the first man of what? The new creation. And as Christ ascends, what is the first thing that takes place? The book of Acts says that suddenly there came from heaven a sound like mighty rushing wind that filled the entire house where they were sitting. And they began to speak in tongues, and fire sat above their heads. The Spirit comes in the form of what sounds like rushing wind. What is the result of that wind, that Spirit, coming down on these people and speaking in these tongues? Remember what happened following that? It says that 3,000 are added to the church. 3,000 people are added to the church. Judgment comes, wind comes, a new creation begins. And all of a sudden, those who are lost and dying are being born anew. By the end of this event, where the mighty rushing wind comes, the Spirit comes down, and Peter then, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says at the end of that sermon in Acts 2, the promise of the Holy Spirit that has been poured out, that you will see and hear the promises for you and your children and all who are far off. And he quotes Genesis and the promise, the covenant promise given to Abraham. Remember who Peter's talking to here, right? He's talking to Jews from every nation under the sun, from under heaven. Jews have been raised on the Old Testament that know the promises of Abraham, right? I will be a God to you and to your children. Through you, all the nations will be blessed, of the earth will be blessed. Jews that knew that when God redeemed those from Egypt, their children passed through and were part of those promises. These are Jews to whom he's preaching that know that on the eighth day their sons are set apart from the world by receiving the sign of the covenant as they're circumcised. These are Jews who teach their children. From the youngest years, you are part of God's family. You're part of God's covenant community. You're not like the world. And these Jews here in this first sermon of the New Testament church, the new creation church, And at the end of it, Peter says what? The promise is for you and for your children and for the Gentiles. Would they at all be shocked that their children are being included in something that God is doing? No. That would be completely normal to them. What are they shocked by? The great scandal is not that the children were included, but that Gentiles get to come in. Not at all that their children get to come in. It's always been a part, it's always been part and parcel of their faith. And so Peter tells us there that that is going to continue. And that's why we see in the rest of the book of uh, Acts that when an individual believes and they have a household, who else is baptized? Everyone in the household. They're all brought into the visible church and receive the sign of that visible church, the covenant, the sign of the covenant. The way of faith continues from the Old Testament into the New. And you'll notice that we see this not only in Acts, right? but when we open the epistles, uh, Ephesians, for example, and Paul begins to instruct the church, what does he say? He says, listen, 
as I tell you about all the blessings that you have in the heavenly places, you're seated right now with Christ in heaven, in glory. God, who ordained all these things before the foundation of the world, he chose you before you were born to be part of the family of God. You who were dead in your trespasses and sins, you've been made alive together with Christ. And he goes through all the blessings of salvation, right? All the blessings, and then he begins to instruct the church. He says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as to Christ. He says, children, someday in the future, when you get bigger and you reach this mysterious age of accountability and become Christians, then obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. That's not what he says. It's not what he says. It's not his word to the children. Notice Paul makes no differentiation in the congregation between the young and the old. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And even goes on to the masters and servants, right? And so Paul in Ephesians covers his whole household. And he says, all of you have the same promises that come from these first three chapters I've just told you. The blessing and glory of your salvation and who you are. All the blessings I've told you about in those chapters, I'm speaking to each one of you. And he says, children, obey your parents. Notice, in the Lord, for this is right. This is the first commandment with the promise. And he quotes there the Decalogue, right? The Ten Commandments. And that was clearly given to the Israelite children because they were part of the covenant community. And this doesn't change when we come into the New Testament as far as how God views our children. And that is why, brothers and sisters, we brought these children this morning, these covenant children, for baptism without shame and without apology. We affirm what God has done and what he has said through all of history, that he is a God for us and for our children after us. And notice These waters are just the beginning of their walk with Christ. These waters will call them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ day after day after day. And it will call them to repent of their sins day after day after day. And these waters will name them. And these waters waters that were judgment for Christ, their Savior will become a sign of their salvation. But they will also be, for them, a warning, just like we are seeing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And so, dear brothers and sisters, you who have yourself have come into the waters of baptism, Christ has named you with his own name. To you are the promises of God. And they demand that you repent and that you believe every day of your life as you look to Christ, your Savior. You see, it doesn't just demand that life from the little ones. It demands that from all of us, which is, by the way, why when we pour out the waters in baptism, we are required to warn the congregation. Remember your own baptism, by which you were vowed to God. As you pass through those waters, you renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. And now God is calling you. He's saying, I am blessed. I have blessed you with myself. Don't turn back on those blessings. Don't go back to your former way of life. I brought you into a new creation. I've made you new. Continue to repent. Continue to believe and trust the gospel. And you see, this is not some sort of strange magical guarantee. This is God's promise and blessing of himself to us. And it requires of us faith in the God who gives the gift. And that requirement is all lifelong. We throw ourselves on the work 
of our Savior. We rest in his strength. We rely in his provision. He must be everything. Because in those waters of baptism, the very judgment that you and I deserve were already poured out on Christ, the one who bore those flood waters and was drowned underneath them so that you and I, you and I might be set free to live for him. Free not to sin, but free from sin. That we might live before the face of God as the new creations that we now are. And if we have failed in those things, and when we fail to do so, the glory is that we can look back and we cling to those promises that God made when he marked us. And that we might reaffirm through repentance and faith that Christ is ours and we are his. Glorious. And you see in baptism, it shows us that we are God's all lifelong. Will never let us go. Baptism says that that, that God calls us to make every decision for Jesus, that we might all lifelong look to the one who bore our judgment and in gratitude give ourselves to him afresh and again and always. And if we have fallen and when we have fallen, to repent of those things and to look to who we are through baptism once again, trusting in the promises of God that he made. This water defines you. Baptism tells you who you are. Even when you don't feel like it does, his promise, his gift is greater than our feelings. It's greater than our failures. So may you remember who you are this day and every day and look to Christ afresh for your salvation and for your very life. And may we pray and plead these promises for our children that they all lifelong will believe in the same faithful Savior who has claimed them in these waters of baptism as we too remember and rest upon this same Christ who is our life and who is our peace. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our loving God, we praise you for your work in our lives. We praise you for calling us out of a dead and dying world and giving us life in Christ, eternal life and a home in glory, a new heart to reside with you forever. We ask that you would help us anew to believe who we are by virtue of your work in our lives and calling us and naming us and that, and that we are new creations. Lord, help us to, to walk after you with all of our lives. Lord, we do pray for the children of this church, that you would bless them, that you would protect them in every way, and that they would love you with all their hearts. And as they go through this life, that they would cling to you more and more. They would come forth like the children of Zion. We pray, Lord, for the parents in this congregation as well, that they would love their children and rear them according to your word. We grant, Father, that the husbands and wives would love one another with a Christ-like love and sacrificial service one to another. Lord, we pray as well for those who are single among us. Grant them the comfort of your love and, and providence and provision in their lives. Lord, we pray your perfect will for them and that it is your pleasure to bring others into their lives and bless them with companionship and relationship that you would protect them in these things, that you would give them uh, discernment and they would follow your word and they would bring you glory. But whatever, your Lord, Lord, whatever, Lord, your will is for them, Help us all to delight in you and revel in your love and find satisfaction and contentedness ultimately and alone in Savior, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Even for all of us, Father, we pray, help us to have hearts filled with your love. We would be caring for one another, 
praying with one another, loving each other in a way that would be a witness to the dead and dying world around us in such need of the gospel. Use us, we pray, Lord, in our lives to witness to your love. We thank you for your provision to have fed us afresh this day by your word and that you will feed us again in the supper with Christ, the bread of heaven. May we see, Lord, that this is our life and our sustenance through all of our lives. Father, we praise you. We thank you that we can come boldly before you by virtue of the completed work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We ask all these things in his name, Jesus, our Lord and Redeemer. Amen.